This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Campsite Media. The name models got the wings. They all knew that it was a privilege to wear them because not all the other girls did. Originally, the wings were white because that's what they were selling. I think that they didn't necessarily know that the wings could have their own identity. So we started up with white. Then things started to change. They started to get a little bit more complicated. We started to introduce color and we started to come up with themes so that we had space wings. We had animal wings where we made wings out of antlers. We also did a holiday where we made wings out of candy. We made wings out of credit cards. There are simpler ones and more complicated ones like the 12 foot high uh, Heidi Klum wings. Every year she would want bigger and bigger wings. So I gave her the biggest wings that we could do that she could manage. She even had problems getting on stage because her wings were so big. Why, why did she want them bigger and bigger? Because she wanted to be more spectacular than the rest of the girls. This is Fallen Angel. I'm Vanessa Gregoriadis. And I'm Justine Harmon. Episode 5, Wings. Will you ever break your spell? We've traveled a lot of ground in this podcast. We started by talking about Justine stealing a thong out of her friend's drawer at 15. And early on, we pulled back the curtain on the Victoria's Secret image by sharing the story of Australian model Bridget Malcolm, whose eating disorder was so bad, she couldn't concentrate enough to read a book. Too hungry. You know, after spending three months eating nothing but protein shakes and steamed vegetables and exercising, I, I don't feel sexy. I, I mean, I don't even know what that feels like at this point, you know. At the top of the Victoria's Secret Corporation was one man, Les Wexner, but also his right-hand man, Ed Razek. We're looking for fresh faces. We're looking for beautiful young girls. We've talked a lot about Les Wexner now, but you may not understand how he handled all the young and eager women coming from different parts of the world looking to get in with Victoria's Secret. If they got a chance to walk in a Victoria's Secret show, wow. so emotional. I don't even know what to do with myself right now. <laughs> if they got to wear wings in a Victoria's Secret show, become angels, that was the ultimate way to go from meat to money. From no-name model to mini-mogul. To walk and have wings, it almost, it almost feels like you can fly. So as I said, Les Wexner, the top executive, was ultimately in charge of this heavenly sweepstakes. 
But if you're imagining that he was sewing patterns for wings with Martin Izquierdo, the artisan we just heard from, you would definitely be imagining wrong. No one we talked to said Les Wexner had much to do with models. And here's what he said himself. I've never been on a photo shoot, by the way, for Victoria, but I always ask the people that run it, what are the supermodels saying? So yeah, Les Wexner might have been interested in what the supermodels were saying, but he still kept himself a step removed. A former employee told me that, you know, the runway shows had after parties, but Les Wexner only showed up once to that after party. He still preferred Ohio, the quiet life. Despite his knack for selling youthful virility to the masses and questionable taste in a friend and financial advisor, Les Wexner was keeping it conventional in Columbus. In fact, much more conventional in terms of family dynasties than before, when he was a single guy hanging out with Jeffrey Epstein. Now, I'm not saying Jeffrey Epstein wasn't still in the picture. He was. The New York Times reported that Epstein was the master of ceremonies for one of Wexner's swishy birthdays. Epstein also owned a 10,000-square-foot house in New Albany. Epstein's little black book was full of numbers with 614s, which is Columbus's area code. And yet, Les Wexner was now going to have someone else in his life. Here's Cindy Fields again. You know, he waits a long time until he marries, and he marries the picture-perfect woman. Beautiful, smart, accomplished. At 55 years old, Les had finally shed his billionaire bachelor designation. Les's life with his new wife, Abigail Koppel, was pretty great. She was 31, an attorney at a white shoe law firm, and they were ready to start a family. They have the picture-perfect family, the four children, builds this magnificent house of his with the horse barn and the party barn and the pool to bathe the horses and the, the wife rides horses. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome one and all to the 415th commencement of The Ohio State University. Les and Abigail were Columbus's most important couple. Decades, Abigail Wexner has worked tirelessly and often anonymously on behalf of the Columbus community. Thousands of victims of child abuse and domestic violence have been afforded hope and healing. She and her husband have been devoted friends to Ohio State and contributed profoundly to the advancement of academic excellence but Abigail wasn't the only new female figure in Les Wexner's world. Remember Victoria, the original Victoria's Secret muse? The sophisticated British woman with a barrister husband who was the icon for the brand? Well, she was out. I can't remember when Victoria, the mythical Victoria, the wonderful Victoria that I loved so much, got pushed to the side and that we started talking about TC. Who's TC? TC was our nickname for the target customer. And Les started throwing out the idea that we should talk about the target customer, not Victoria. So this new girl had a name, TC. The muse for the company was no longer a sophisticated, vaguely European lady. TC was a fame-adjacent, upwardly mobile bombshell. Hello, bombshell. Baby, baby, baby. 
HEC was this 27-year-old woman. She had an MBA from Stanford. She lived in Chicago. She worked for an advertising company. Victoria's Secret's new miraculous push-up instantly adds two cup sizes. And she dated a Chicago Bull, a professional basketball player. Looking good, bombshell. Victoria was about romantic, seduction, mystery, classiness. I don't think she was in your face sexy. So get ready to turn heads and get used to the attention. So it was a surprise. Hello, bombshell. So TC's look, it became very popular and really very specific. The 1920s were a flapper time of flat chests. The 1950s were all about the cone-shaped bra and the sweater girls. The 60s went back to Twiggy, or the 70s were the bra-burning times. The 80s were small pert boobs under power suits. But the 90s and the 2000s, they belonged to Victoria's Secret push-up bras. I'm talking push your boobs to the center to look as big as possible all inside tangerine-colored or lilac mesh bras. Here's Virginia Heffernan. They have, like, those brazen kind of hussy colors. And some idea that that is progressive in the sense that it is um, women taking charge of their sexuality. More sexiness after the break. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. It's Sophia Franklin, and I have a little secret to let you in on. I know you've all wanted more of me, so I'm introducing you to my brand new mini series that's out now. More of me, more of you, more of us every Monday. Bringing back all the OG feels that initially brought us together. Listen and follow Sophia with an F on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Just as L Brand's biggie, Les Wexner, was settling down and starting a family in Ohio, Ed Razik was getting ready to take Victoria's Secret into the world of high fashion. Shh. It's a secret. Okay, well, not quite high fashion. The very first Victoria's Secret fashion show was in 1995 and held at the Plaza, the famously fusty and ornamental hotel Kevin McAllister preferred for his New York jaunt in Home Alone 2. Plaza Hotel Reservations, may I help you? I'd like a hotel room, please. With an extra large bed, a TV, and one of those little refrigerators you have to open with a key. The show may have been a little lacking in the cool department, but it was still pretty provocative. Models like Veronica Webb and Stephanie Seymour walked. No, they wiggled. Down an elevated runway, in slips and underwear worn with handbags and cardigans, the show stylist described the look as sexy, healthy, with a clean edge. A photo from that day 
shows a serious-looking Jeffrey Epstein in a double-breasted black blazer and surrounded by men in suits and ties. Things got fresher in 1997 when they introduced The Angels, the elite and exclusive tier of models. It was one thing to be modeling for Victoria's Secret. It's another thing to be a Victoria's Secret angel. When the Victoria's Secret Angels first landed, podcaster and designer Rachel Omondi was just a Midwestern girl, albeit one with magazine and catalog tears papering her bedroom walls. For me, it was Tyra, it was Heidi Klum, it was Giselle, it was Adriana Lima, it was, you know, Alessandra Ambrosio. I mean, these women, to me, were like Victoria's Secret angels, you know, growing up. They were Brazilian and they were, you know, this kind of exoticism and, or, or what I knew to be that, right? Fashion has never been about clothes. It's never been about the goods or the product. Not really, right? It's been about this thing that you're able to believe in. If you're going to sell fashion, you need to be in the business of selling dreams. And I think there was a point in time where VS had a definite heartbeat and we could all feel it. These are things that you cannot fake. Who crafted this narrative? I don't know. All I knew is that I swallowed it, like I took it. I digested it like everybody else, and you you aspired towards it. Ed Razik has said that it was Les Wexner, the chairman of the company, who came up with the angel concept. But even if Les Wexner started this whole idea, he was MIA. Ed was in charge of everything. He presided over the insecure royal court. Whether it was models from Eastern Europe when the Soviet Union was disintegrating or models from Brazil with a lot of vowels in their names, he was the decider over all of them. And he was fun back then. People really liked him. A lot of people told us that. He was warm. He was clever. He liked a good joke. He loved theatricality, making headlines. What we're doing is really a pioneering effort. And I think the most creative use of the web yet. When we're done, I believe one in five people on the planet will see some part of the coverage. That was Ed talking about live streaming the fashion show. It was 1999, and this was a big deal. Websites were pretty basic. The influx of traffic even crashed the brand's website. I mean, Kim Kardashian was still a teenager when Victoria's Secret first broke the internet. Everything Victoria's Secret did was big and bright campy, irreverent, and totally ahead of its time. When they would launch a concept, you know, if it was double, you know, double push-ups, so a lift bra with a cookie, everyone else would follow and they would start doing that. This is Jack Waldman. He's general counsel at A&H Sportswear, a family swimwear company that has been competing with Victoria's Secret for decades. Jack says Victoria's Secret understood the digital landscape and how women shop online well before the competition. You know, they were sort of innovating on the product side, innovating on the maximalist photography and great assets. And they had an incredible e-com site and they had a bikini mixer before anybody was doing that. And so they they were just ahead of the curve. What's a bikini mixer? On an e-com site where you have a very easy Uh, sort of mix and match platform where you can easily sort of sort through tops and bottoms and make your own bikini. It wasn't just that it was, you know, this, this sexy, seductive image. It was also, wow, this is like kind of made for me. And then in 2000, 
with a little help from movie mogul Harvey Weinstein. Yeah, the show was held at the Cannes Film Festival. The next year, the show made its broadcast debut on ABC. Kicking off the second half of the Victoria's Secret Fashion Show with the number one song in America, Mary J. Blige. British actor Rupert Everett hosted the $5 million production and made the kind of jokes you certainly can't make these days. Like this one. Lock your wives or girlfriends in the attic because we are going to take a virtual tour of Heidi Klum's body. And this one. Here we are at Bryant Park. We're in New York City. Security is tight and so are the girls. The maximalism, the pageantry, the angels. It was all pretty hard to miss. It's pure mayhem. We, I don't think we ever really aligned ourselves with Victoria's Secret. To me, it felt always like a spectacle. It felt manufactured. It felt like a stunt. That's Jenna Lyons. If you're a fashion fan, you likely recognize the name. Jenna spent over 25 years working at J. Crew. She eventually became the brand's executive creative director and an emblem for women who dress for themselves, not for men. I grew up in California where, you know, Baywatch had a stronghold and, you know, girls with blonde hair and big boobs was like, you know, that was the golden ideal. And I was not that. I was pretty flat-chested and uh, didn't, you know, really feel that comfortable in a bathing suit. And, you know, the Victoria's Secret catalog would come to my house. And I was a young girl opening up this catalog and thinking like, oh, is that what I'm supposed to look like? And so that was my first real um, connection to what I thought men wanted. And, um, you know, it wasn't even about the clothing at that point. Like, I literally asked my mom for a boob job when I was young and like, she actually looked into it for me because I had really small boobs. Meanwhile, it's so ironic because I actually love my boobs and they're like my favorite part of my body because they're cute and little and they are still pointing up to the sky. Thank fucking God. But when I was young, Victoria's Secret had really taken such a strong foothold. And I think for me, as I think it probably did for a lot of people, it represented, you know, an aspiration that was probably not attainable. The level of sexiness that was portrayed, even for me back then, was was challenging. Flash forward a few years, and 21-year-old Jenna lands an assistant design job at J. Crew, the preppy American prestige brand and mall staple. We had such a long history and narrative around who the brand was, you know, the undertone of preppy, you know, borderline easy kind of basics, the roll neck sweater, which was literally just the idea of a sweater where all of the yarns had pulled off and it left this raw edge. But even though J. Crew was selling an entirely different narrative, Joey Potter on the beach in chino shorts, they couldn't exactly ignore Victoria's Secret either. I'm not going to send a chino down a runway with like I just said there's no there's no relationship to that those things so it wasn't like we looked at them and said oh we should we should do a stunt because I think what they were doing was really just about the girls it was all about the angels It was a virtuous circle the angels promoted the brand and the brand promoted the angels for wearing some very small underpants and a spiky headdress that might gore you if you got too close and feathered wings that looked kind of cool, but would definitely not be cool to have sex with someone while wearing, the angels became glitter-bombed, money-making machines. Being a Victoria's Secret model just meant that you leveled up to jets and yachts and all that shit that Les Wexner had, but regular people didn't. For a while, Victoria's Secret was paying seven figures to angels, according to Forbes. All of it was enough to make your head spin. 
And for some of the women inside the spectacle, it felt like being aboard a glittering snow globe, forever being hurtled through space. What are the details that you remember about those crazy, hectic show days? It's this hot pink glitter whirlwind of flashing lights, loud music. It's very Technicolor. That's Erin Heatherton. She was a Victoria's Secret model and one of only 41 women to ever become a bona fide angel. Vanessa and I reached out to many, many former and current Victoria's Secret models to see whether they might like to speak with us about their experiences. Almost all of them said no. We couldn't even get past gatekeepers for others. So many DMs went unanswered. And then one day, I did something that would probably scare the balls off the average man. I cold-called an angel, Aaron, and she answered. And then slowly, over time, she told me her story. I was just turning 17 when I first uh, started modeling. Looking back, that feels really young, but I don't feel like I was a young 17. I was super serious in high school. I played competitive sports. I was like a science nerd. I was like super into going to school. I wanted to be a doctor. Like you couldn't pay me to be on a stage in high school. You know, I wasn't interested in the spotlight or attention in that way that where modeling kind of fits. But when I was scouted, I saw it as an opportunity. In in terms of like the business world and the cutthroat world of modeling, I was very naive, but I felt like that I could handle myself. You know, I can take care of myself. Erin never felt like she had the right personality for the gig. She wasn't always cheery. She didn't consider herself sexy. Not in that fierce, slinky way the other girls were anyway. But she kept her head down and made sure she always looked the part. You know, I didn't feel like I deserved to be there from the beginning. Just as a model, I felt like I had to do extraordinary things just to prove that I belong because I felt so far from that world. I just applied work ethic to it. Erin, like so many other women, really wanted those wings. And in 2010, after two years walking the show, she got them. I think being a bombshell is really about having a side that's laid back and and relaxed and also being able to be feminine and sexy. All of a sudden, Erin had leveled up. My first trip with VS was to St. Bart's and that's kind of where I fell in love with VS and the beach. Erin Heatherton went on to become one of the brand's most visible models and a pitch-perfect representative of TC. You could say she gave great angel. It's all about confidence, and that's really what being a Victoria's Secret angel has taught me. She even dated Leonardo DiCaprio for nearly a year. Basically, Leo's life doesn't suck. It very much is like being an actor, but like full time. And you're kind of just representing this brand and the expectations associated with what that means. It it just kind of propelled me to conform, like just to try to just keep up and fit that mold a little bit. It's a big responsibility. It felt like that in, in the realm of my modeling career was definitely more of an all encompassing identity. You know, that's, it doesn't just leave you when you go home. 
it's kind of something that people just associate with you. And yeah, they just have, you know, just broader expectations of you. Give me the wings, you know, I, I want them. I'm going to work them. And it's just fun for me. More after the break. Calling all pop culture enthusiasts. Are you obsessed with all things celebrity? Do you live for the drama, the laughs, and the unexpected moments that unfold on social media? Then you're going to want to tune in to the Comments by Celebs podcast. Join us three times a week as we deep dive into every aspect of pop culture. Whether it's dissecting the latest trends or just chatting about your favorite celebs, Comments by Celebs has you covered. We have new episodes out every week. Follow and listen to Comments by Celebs on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. So Erin Heatherton was busy doing what angels do, cameos in Adam Sandler movies, posing for fashion magazine covers. She was basically winning the game. And other models really wanted to get a spot on that gilded runway, too. Here's Saram Denise, who grew up in Africa. You know, I grew up watching Naomi Campbell, Tyra Banks, all these magazines, Vogue, uh, Elle, Mary Claire. When I showed to my parents my interest, it was, it was terrible because my stepdad, he was like, are you crazy? What are you going to do with modeling here in Angola? And when I get to New York, the first five months, I was, I was like a baby. I was always crying. I miss my family. Oh, I want to go back. But at the end of the year, my agency told me, oh, you know what? Victoria's Secret wants to see you for the show. From that moment, my life changed. The way I would train would be different. The way I would eat would be different. The way I would behave with people uh, during jobs would be completely different. So I was always asking, when is the casting? When is the casting? Because I believe it's that stamp on your passport that you became a supermodel. And that would open doors for a successful career. Swedish model Dorothea Bart-Jorgensen, who walked the Victoria's Secret runway in 2009 and 2012, felt the same way. If you learned the ropes and played the game better than the other girls, you could get to the heavens. Doing the Victoria's Secret show was was next level of, like... (laughs) playing and being open and showing yourself and um, putting on some extra performance skills. One year, she even found herself biking through a hurricane just to audition for the show. It was during the storm Sandy. With storm surges predicted between 6 and 11 feet. Oh, it was horrible. It was like stormy and cold and gray. I had to have my, what do you call it, the, the sun tan, the fake tan. Right now, this is all preparation for us. Hair, makeup, you know, the bronzing, the bare bronzing. You know, all the trains and stuff and cabs, like the bridge over was pretty much closed. No New York City subways, buses or trains are running this morning. So I had to bike and after the spray tan, it was like everything was a mess on me. Like I looked really, really bad. So I freaked out about that. My body was like orange, like orange, orange patches everywhere. And I was like, oh, no, shit. But it's all these small things that like no one is ever thinking about that we have to kind of endure and go through. Being a Victoria's Secret model was a lot like wearing golden handcuffs, grueling, sometimes ridiculous work 
but with major rewards. Being accepted by the brand was like being welcomed into a safer, sparklier inner sanctum. So what if you had to be super tan during a natural disaster or act agreeable all the time? In modeling, you're so you're so isolated. You're so on your own. You go from one job to the next. You really don't have a place or a community or anything familiar or constant. And when you start working with Victoria's Secret, you are like a part of something. And the girls that I worked with were so amazing. And they were like my best friends during that time. And just, I never felt alone. But even here, inside the Valhalla of modeling, where models go from meat to money, stuff got grimy. People would always gossip hair and makeup artists about like the girls who got cut. And it's always, it's kind of like a cult mentality where it's like, you want to be in because God forbid you're not in because that's the worst. And you never want to be the person that's being spoken about, you know? For all the, it's just girls hanging out, working out, having fun, ethos of Victoria's Secret, instead of a bro ha you could call it a bra ha it was still pretty easy to fall from grace, to get cut, to become the wicked angel. And as we've said, of course, Ed was in charge, but there was a whole popular in-group kind of system here, and other people policed who was in and out. In 2013, Erin Heatherton walked her final Victoria's Secret fashion show, but not as an angel. Even though she had gone to extreme measures to make the cut, taking a substance later described to her, she said, as bathwater meth to lose weight, her angel contract hadn't been renewed. For the first time in three years, she didn't get to wear the wings. Everything that I was doing up until that point was the same. You know, I had a certain diet. I worked out a lot of times twice a day. And there was this certain point when I hit 25 where things started to go south for me. Everything that I was doing just didn't yield the same results. Like I was just a little bit bigger. In retrospect, that's just biology and how the body works. You know, you're not the same size when you're 18 to when you're 25. The last show, I wasn't an angel anymore, but I still wanted to do the show. And it was like, I really felt like... I really felt like a black sheep in that show. It was just hard. I felt really like left out. I mean, I just had my tail between my legs a little bit and was just like, okay, now I'm the, it's, you know, it's like being in fifth grade, you know, and being out for the, for the week, right? It kind of feels like that, but like more intense and more tied to your financial well-being. Just like that, Aaron was out. It's like someone flipped a switch and things just weren't technicolor anymore. It was my world, you know, it was my reality. I'm a Victoria's Secret supermodel. Like that, that is me. Once you are not that, the foundation crumbles. Like there's no, I don't know, not being good enough in that respect means like, what am I at all then if I'm not this? Did you feel like you'd kind of gotten lost in between the two Aaron kind of characters? Oh yeah, I totally got lost between the two. It's, I guess, easier for me to speak in this way, sitting where I am now, where I'm like grounded and back in my identity. But there was definitely a separation of my identity. And there was so much of me just kind of treading water, trying to be this person that is just such an act for me. 
After six years spent inside the spectacle, Aaron quickly lost touch with almost everyone in that world. Since severing ties with the brand, she's moved out of New York. For a minute there, the media treated her like its personal punching bag, reporting on her every late night as if she were the hot mess express. I ask her whether she thinks someone could have planted those stories to hurt her. She says it's possible, but that it doesn't much matter anyway. She's moved on. She lives in Chicago now, where she's the co-founder of a fitness studio. She has a boyfriend. It isn't Leo. It's been almost a decade since Aaron's wings were clipped, but she still feels uncomfortable in the industry. Every time she goes out for a job, she remembers what it's like to be on the outside. I always felt like so much rejection from the modeling industry that I just kind of stay away from it. Like I just kind of like operating in my normal life, you know, because it's just, I don't know, every time I try to step back, it's just very triggering for me. And there's just this like dark cloud. Do you feel like, I don't know, you have a scarlet letter? Probably. Like that's part of it. I didn't feel like when everything was at its worst that like anyone was there to support me I just felt really cast aside, and that uh, that hurt more than anything. Like I don't care about losing my VS role as much as I cared about losing my friends and my community. That was really the core of what made me happy in modeling, and it just got me thinking afterwards, reflecting on my experience, how powerful that group image is, and how kind of genius it is that they... You know, it's not just, you know, nameless, faceless models, like interchangeable. It's like a group of people. Everyone has their identity and you kind of just want to be in that group. And even in real life, like being in that group was the thing that made it magic. Next time on Fallen Angel. He was sitting with the table of models. And at one point, he was trying to get the models to make a comment. Like, do you really think she needs to go get another plate of food? The thing is, I was always too young for Victoria's Secret. It was pink that was the game changer. Like, pink, pink changed everything. I was just like, let me Lance Armstrong this because I am renovating my condo. Like, I can't lose my job right now. Fallen Angel is a documentary production from C13 Originals, a Cadence 13 studio, and Campside Media. Executive produced by Chris Corcoran for Cadence 13, and by me, Vanessa Gregoriatis, and Justine Harmon. Executive producers for Campside are Adam Hoff, Josh Dean, and Matt Scher. Narrated and written by Vanessa Gregoriatis and Justine Harmon. Directed by Lloyd Lockridge. Production led by Paige Heimsen. Edited by Alistair Sherman. Mixed and mastered by Chris Basil. Production support and research by Ian Mant, Sean Cherry, Bob Tabador, Bill Schultz, Kelly Rafferty, Kelly Hitchcock, Natalia Winkleman, Aaliyah Papes, Sarah Patterson, Alex Yablon, and Doug Slaywin. Artwork and graphic design by Kurt Courtney. Marketing and publicity by Brian Swart. Maura Curran, Hilary Schuff, and Josephina Francis. Original music by Skyline Brigade. Our theme song is Heartbreak Hollywood by Ledesi. Cadence 13 is an Odyssey company. Will you ever break your spell?
It's Sophia Franklin, and I have a little secret to let you in on. I know you've all wanted more of me, so I'm introducing you to my brand new mini-series that's out now. More of me, more of you, more of us every Monday. Bringing back all the OG feels that initially brought us together. Listen and follow Sophia with an F on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.